I've titled the sermon for this morning, Trusting God in Troubled Times. Today is Mother's Day, and I wish all the mothers a very happy Mother's Day. But there's so much more in our world right now. I'm wondering how many people actually were able to celebrate Mother's Day the way they normally would have or usually do. And there's some sense of normalcy in some areas, but in some areas it's much, difficult, much more difficult. And initially when I prepared this worship calendar, the sermon calendar rather, what I always do is I work a few months ahead of time just to think what would be good or what is, it, what is needful for us as a body of believers to, to focus on. So today is, of course, Mother's Day, and I thought, okay, you know, I will preach a sermon on mothers, about Mother's Day, about mothers in general. But then as it grew closer and I started working on this sermon, that's such a big topic in terms of what we're going through. I'm going to combine it with a bigger picture. And so I want to ask this question this morning. Who do you trust or who do you go to when you face trials? Who do you trust or who do you go to when you face trials? And the answer would be, well, trust God in troubled times. But it's a much bigger picture. With everything that is going on and continues to go on, many people are just tired. Many are frustrated. Some are scared. Some feel it will never get better. And each one processes this whole thing a bit different. We're not all the same. And it affects people differently as well. For some people, they've lost their income. This last year, due to the issues that are going on, some have lost their income in addition to job loss. They've now find themselves in a very conflicted environment. One says this, one says that, and everybody has an opinion. Everybody's right, and, and everybody else, the other is wrong, and so on. And it's very controversial. Lots of conflict. Right down to married couples between themselves. In the big picture, it feels as the society is losing its grip. Things are not what they used to be. In situations when we feel the fabric of society, of our very nation, is at stake, it doesn't matter where we look, whether it's social, moral, economic, mental, and whatever. There's so many questions, so few answers. And we feel like we can't win, we can't move, we can't, can't see a future. But we can turn to God in times of trial. And again, this is much bigger than just a Mother's Day sermon. Mothers know what, what, temp, what, what uh, trouble is in terms of uh, tr- trials and, and testings. And Being a mother is a very difficult task. It's a huge responsibility. It takes commitment, determination. And I want to just say that the sermon that I'm preaching today is based on a passage that I've used for that. But as I was digging through this passage this last week, I realized, wait a minute. Yeah, it's about mothers, but it's so much bigger. We're going to go in a, in a, into this passage in a little while here. But regardless of what your struggle is, where you're at in life, we must always come back to the central core question, do we trust God? And the backdrop for the sermon or the the context, the setting for the sermon will be out of 1 Samuel chapter 1, but I won't start there. I won't start in 1 Samuel 1. I'm going to go elsewhere first. I'm going to say a few words about the main character of the story and then a few other things 
And then we'll read chapter 1. The main character of the story is Hannah. Her problem was she couldn't have children, and so she prayed to God for a child. And as I said before, I've preached Mother's Day sermons from this text, as I was planning to, but changed my mind. I want to direct our thoughts in a bigger circle. But the context of the story is a very dark, dark time in the nation of Israel. In fact, this period of history in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and onward was such a dark time that from the time that this woman Hannah prayed the prayer that she prayed, it was not that many years later that God carried out an act of severe judgment on the nation in which this happened. So before we go into chapter 1 of 1 Samuel and talk about Hannah, I want to talk about what environment did she live in? What was the culture of her time? What situations did she face or did they face? The nation of Israel at that time, they still had a faith practice. They still believed in God. They went about the religious services like many God-confessing, God-worshipping people would do. But there were grievous sins in the nation of Israel's leadership. And these sins needed to be dealt with, and God was going to do it. It was during this time, the time frame of Samuel chapter 1, that a man named Eli was the leading priest and also a judge in Israel. Eli was the man who was at the tent of meeting, uh, they had a tent of meeting, and some places it calls it a temple, but uh, they, had, they didn't have an official temple like later Solomon built, but this place of worship, Eli was in charge. He was the man who was not only the uh, high priest or the priest, the main priest, he was also a judge of Israel. Added to that, he had two sons. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. So Eli, his sons Hophni and Phinehas, they were all in the priestly duty. They were serving at the tent of meeting. Translated in today's language, they would have the key pastoral roles in the country. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. As I said, these were the equivalent of what would be today lead pastors. Bad leaders, it says. I just want us to let that sink in for a moment. They were bad spiritual leaders. But they were in the top circles of influence and power. And yet it says they were worthless men who did not know the Lord. When the top leaders and the spiritual leadership are characterized as worthless, that is really bad. But doesn't that sound a bit modern though? I mean, how many churches in North America are not about God at all? So, but all kinds of other things, but it's not about God. Not only were these worthless men, uh, there was a whole bunch of other stuff going on. They abused their position of power and how the offerings and the sacrifices were performed, and it wasn't good. In fact, <clears throat> these worthless, corrupt priests took advantage of the people who brought animals for sacrifice. In the book of the law, the priests were given a very exact, detailed set of instructions how to perform the sacrifice, how the animal was to be laid out on the altar, how it was to be burnt, not, not consumed, but to, to be roasted, and how it was to be sacrificed. Some were in some were one way and some another way. But actually, those sacrifices were also as food for the priests. 
But these priests, they did things their way, in a way that was uh, personal gain for them. And you can read that in Second Sam, First Samuel chapter 2, read the whole chapter. But that was not all these worthless priests were doing, not just were they worthless men. Let's read chapter 2, verse 22 to 26. It gets worse. <clears throat> now, Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. They were moral. Priests, pastors who were sexually moral people. That's what they were. It's a sad, jaw-dropping story of what these religious leaders were doing. They were dishonest, they were corrupt, they were immoral, and they were pastors. And if you continue reading 1 Samuel, as I mentioned earlier, you will find in the end God did judge Eli, not because of the wrong he did, he, did some, he, did, he was neglectful, because he did not stop his sons, and he did not prevent what they did. So God acted in judgment against them. Not just were these troublesome times in the religious sphere, it was also the political side. <clears throat> if you study the history between Israel and the Philistines, it wasn't good. And eventually war broke out, and that was how Eli and his sons, Phinehas, um, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed in battle, and Eli died as a result of hearing the bad news, fell off his chair, and died from a broken neck. What happened in chapter 1 that I'm going to talk about now is all stuff that is in a very microcosm of uh, the big picture. You think, what's one woman not having a baby? What's that got to do with all of this? How does that even relate? How does that influence? Well, that was what God was going to use to shape and form a set of circumstances that would bring the nation back to him. It's an amazing story if you read it and study it. God was going to deal with the sin and corruption in the nation of Israel, but he started small. One neglected, not neglected, one um, mistreated and struggling, suffering woman asking God for a baby, and that was how it started. Before I read that, um, the question I want to ask is, do you think Hannah knew that if she would pray and ask for a baby, that God would answer and then that that baby would grow into be a powerful spiritual leader who would form the direction of the nation for years and decades to come? Did she think that? Probably not. We don't think that way. We, we usually think, okay, this is my struggle. This is my need. Here's my problem. I'm going to go to God, never considering how big and expansive that influence will be. God had good plans for his people. I want to say to us today, God has good plans. may not look like that. It may not feel that way. But that's not our problem. Our thing is, are we trusting God? Can we trust God with our situation? It doesn't feel very good sometimes. But from an eternal perspective, God is at work. He's doing his thing. Samuel had an interesting start. So with all that said, but what was going on in the big picture, and then, how, and then now we're going to go back to chapter 1. We're going to start there because chapter 2 and 3, that's kind of the backdrop, the main <clears throat> overall view, the, uh, the bird's eye view, we can say. Now we're going to zero in on chapter 1 and see what happens. Let's read chapter 1, beginning verse 1. There was a certain man of 
Ramathaim, Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord the God of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests before the Lord. You see the dots start to connect. Eli, and ha- Eli Hophni and Phinehas are mentioned. These, there's no good priests who are there pastoring. Let's just think about this for a moment. I want us to keep in mind, as I said earlier, to put things into perspective. This is all part of the same story. The backdrop of the corrupt leaders and this lady Hannah. But what we find here already early on is this is not a God-designed home. This man has two women. It was not illegal for a man to have two wives. It was not also, it was also not God's plan, but God allowed it for various reasons. And simply because things happen that way does not mean we have the license now or the freedom to do what they did. But here's a problem. Penina has children. Hannah has none. And that forms a major issue. And he has two wives. And they go to worship at Shiloh, where the tent of meeting is. And there's Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, that ministerial team who's not doing so well. It's setting up to not be a very good functional family in a bad functioning religious system, in a bad political environment. Let's continue reading verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Let's just hold on for a moment. Panina has sons and daughters. Hannah doesn't. Elkanah, the God, the man, he loves his, the barren woman more than the other one, so he gives her more, more, uh, reason, more um, portions. Double portion. But she's not the one with the kids. The kids, Panina has the kids. You can, you can uh, imagine what happens. Verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. She kind of used that as ammunition against her. Verse 7, so it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Panina did that to Hannah. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? You can't heal that pain just like that. The pain of not having children was horrible, especially in that day and age for women in that culture. It was like a curse almost in the sense that I'm, something's wrong with me. It was a very troubled marriage. Three adults and one marriage bond, it's not working well. A polygamous relationship, polygamous relationship. And the Bible makes no secrets about what some of, some of the things were that God's people did that they shouldn't be doing. But here's, here's what ha- was happening. And we could easily speak in judgment of these people, but it's not for us to, to criticize and judge and condemn what they were going through and what they were in. But whatever the reasons were of these dynamics... These two women, both married to the same man, and it's not going well. Things are bad between these two women. No matter how hard Elkanah tried to cover his com- comfort his wife Hannah, not much was working. So here's the, 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 the central core of what happened. It says, after, verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. 
And she vowed a vow and said, here's the prayer, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Did she know that prayer would be would germinate into a fruit, into a reality where she would bring to the Lord a young boy who would turn out to be one of the greatest leaders the nation had ever had. She did not know that at the time. But that's the end result of her prayer. Let's keep going. It says, verse 12, As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been praying out of my great anxiety and vexation. Sometimes the greatest growth is born in the greatest struggle. Continue reading verse 17. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She trusted. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. Verse 21, then Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Chilo. And the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull and then brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have him I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And, she, and he worshiped the Lord there. What a story. What an experience. Hannah had lived a very deeply troubled life, full of anxiety and, and distress and, and struggle in a situation she had no control over, and she desperately wanted help. But all that in a context that was much larger and much greater. A nation that had wandered away from God was living a very shallow spiritual existence. And God was going to do something about it. He was going to use this woman's child that she had prayed for. This woman who had trusted God. He was going to use that to bring about change. Never underestimate your actions. Never underestimate the things you say. Never underestimate the smallest deeds. Hannah trusted in the Lord not knowing how big her influence would be. We read earlier in chapter 2 the things I mentioned before. Things were bad in the country, in the land, in the nation. And somebody might argue, well, yeah, but this happened before. The prayer happened before. That's true, but in a very short space of time. 
if you study the history, it wasn't that many years. And, and nations don't go wayward overnight. It usually is a long, incremental, sometimes decades-long journey when they go from fearing God to being selfish and immoral. They didn't go bad overnight. It was a slippage, an incremental decline. What we do know is, is that when the, from the time this woman prayed this prayer to the time that young Samuel was introduced into the temple was a very short time. He was a young boy. We don't know how old he was. How old, how old is a child when a child is weaned? Probably no, maybe no more than four years old, maybe five. Some people say maybe four or five years old, maybe six, but that would have been already pushing it. And God would use this young boy and God would call him. Again, you can read the story in 1 Samuel, the first few chapters. God called him in a, at night, and in in, during the night, God called him and gave this young boy a message. The stems of the leaders of Israel had brought the nation down to a spiritual lukewarm temperature. The worship was still there, but it was so corrupt, God was going to do something about it. The lukewarmness had, had just uh, saturated the whole um, religious community. There was corruption in the worship service. There was scandal. There was moral corruption. It was into that situation that this small boy was placed. You think, Hannah, what in the world made you think that you're going to pray for a son and bring him there? Look what the news is. Look what the scandals are. But Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. You know, we live in a time and day and age when people say, well, I won't have kids because the world is too bad. Really? That's a lame excuse. It was bad then. Really bad. And if a young couple says, well, I'm not going to have kids because that's saying, God, I don't think you can protect me. I'm not here to tell people to have kids or not have kids. But if that's the excuse, that's very shallow. That's lame. That's not what God wants. In fact, God honored this woman's request. And God used that little child. And in fact, if you read the story, which I encourage you to do, Eli was still a God-fearing man of, in, in some sense, although he didn't have the courage or the backbone to confront us, to deal with his sons. He confronted them, but didn't deal with them. And when the message came to Samuel, a little boy that he was, and God, I'm going to, I'm going to judge, I'm going to judge Eli for what he did, and I'm going to judge his sons, I'm going to judge the house of Israel. And the morning, when it's time to uh, start his uh, daily routine at the temple, Eli says, "So what was that that uh, that uh, dream about you had last night?" And Samuel is, is afraid and he doesn't want. Eli says, "You have to tell me." So he tells him, and Eli accepted the message. Good for him. But little Samuel, he was only a kid. God used him to send a warning to the nation through the through the priest Eli. It was a difficult task for Samuel. We don't find that Samuel had that much of an easy life. I think he had a good life. There's much to the story, but we won't go into it. But what can we learn from this? What does it teach us? You know what? It's always the right time to trust God. Every day is the right day to trust God. Hannah did. Samuel did. In the worst of situations... She had a hard life, a hard partner, a difficult marriage partner. I mean, it was a threesome. How do you, how do you figure that out? Her husband's other wife made life hard for her, even though her husband favored her. her. The situation at the temple, the scandals going on about the immorality, the corruption. And yet here in all this chaos, she prays for a son. God honors her prayer. She dedicates him to serve. And the rest is history.
Hannah did not know. Nor did Samuel know when he was young the impact he was going to have. God does not always solve our problems as much as he helps us through our problems. God wants us to follow no matter how difficult they are. So I don't know where you're at today, your struggles. Maybe you're exhausted and tired. Maybe even your church is not that much of a help. I mean, come on, what, what kind of help was Eli thinking she's drunk and then she hears the scandals and she knows about those things? And man, oh man, that was a bad church. Talk about a bad church. That church had everything wrong with it. And here she brings her little son to that church. And there she dedicates him to serve the Lord. And it worked. What reason do we have to become discouraged? Not even Eli the pastor understood her. Even he mistook her for a drunk. We don't know each other's struggles, but we do know we struggle. And so my encouragement, my advice, and my word to us this morning is let's keep trusting God. Let's go to God in our times of trial. There's a verse, a few verses in Psalm chapter 50, verse 14 to 15. I'm going to read those before we close. Psalm 50, verse 14 says this. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving... Perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. It says nothing about an easy life. It says call upon me in the day of trouble. We, we offer thanksgiving, perform our vows, call in trouble. God will deliver us. It doesn't describe how it's going to happen. And then we will glorify him. It is God that we give ourselves to and God that we trust on a daily basis, in the times of testing. We come to him in our anguish and our struggles, and we talk to him. We have no idea what those small, insignificant-seeming things may yet accomplish that on the big scale look insignificant, but they're not. God takes them very seriously. Our struggles are real to him, too. may not be pretty. It wasn't for little Samuel, but in the end, it was good. And that's God's plan for us, to come to him. He wants good things for his church. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word to us. Thank you for the story of Samuel, Hannah, and the priests. Not a good story, or not a pretty story, but it's a deep story and a powerful message. Help us, Lord Jesus, to learn from it. Help us, Lord, to surrender to you. Help us, Lord, to come to you in our struggles and our trials and to put our trust and faith in you. And you will see us through as we learn to lean on you and put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.